This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, John Sage talks about how he created Pura Vida, a coffee business that can move coffee-producing communities out of poverty. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor-Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. To receive our conversations updates and learn what new podcasts are available, please subscribe to our free bi-monthly newsletter at www.siconversations.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about um, our business and our vision, uh, but I want to tell you a little bit about my story because it sort of sets the context, I think, for what we're doing and, and who we are and, and why Pura Vida is Pura Vida. Um, I grew up in Berkeley. My parents had sort of this crazy idea that in order to provide more family structure and stability, they would move our family to Berkeley from San Francisco. And they decided to do that in 1967 at the height of uh, all the Vietnam War protests. And I should say, although I'm uh, the son of parents who are from good Midwestern stock, uh, my parents are sort of radical, crazy hippie types. and. Uh, they had just a very, very strong conviction uh, that they needed to be about social justice and social change. And part of the reason and rationale for moving to Berkeley, I think, was to be right in the thick of it. And I have memories of being six years old, uh, driving down on Telegraph and University Avenue with my mother in a 64 Impala station wagon, my younger brother in the back seat, and my mother trying to roll up the windows on the station wagon before the tear gas came in. Uh, we we're on the picket line with Cesar Chavez protesting uh, against grapes and lettuce. And I walked precincts for McGovern when I was 11. You sort of get the picture. Uh, and yet, uh, what we could never quite figure out in my family is how much and why I have always loved business. And sort of the, the immediacy and the intensity of being in the marketplace, the sort of feedback that comes from trying to create a product and sell it to a customer. I was sort of like Alex Keaton on Family Ties or whatever that show was, kind of the lone capitalist. And so most of my life, I think, has been uh, sort of a quest, not a struggle, but a quest to try and figure out somehow if there might just be a way to weave together two strands that strike most people as being fundamentally opposed or in opposition. One strand of sort of this Berkeley social justice, environmental stewardship, community transformation thing. And this thing over here that said, um, 
I, I love business. I want to make money. I want to see the validation that comes in, I think, a, a very unique way in a capitalistic system. And so as we sort of dive into some of the details, I want you to just sort of wrestle with me uh, on this one fundamental question. Uh, and that is, can compassion and capitalism coexist? And I take it even a little bit further and say, is there a way to demonstrate that compassion, when sort of forged and folded into the DNA strand of a business, can actually be used to drive value and actually increase competitive advantage and increase profitability? Um, I believe the answer is unquestionably yes. And I've had some very, very meaningful glimpses at what happens when you demonstrate those two things coming together. I think um, one, of the, one of the main challenges, though, to trying to unravel this and pull apart those threads is that we live in a culture that I think is very, very binary and when it comes to thinking about the for-profit and the nonprofit sectors. And by that, I mean much of the world seems to have this view that you either have to be a one, a one or a zero black or white, for-profit or non-profit. And the whole idea that you're going to somehow fuse these things together strikes many people, and I would say especially those in business, and particularly those who I've worked with for many, many years in the high-tech field, as being just the opposite of binary. I've had some of my former colleagues at Microsoft, you know, when I've sat down with them and said, you know, I really think we can create a business and multiply resources and revenue, not for personal enrichment, but to put back into the communities that we serve. You know, they'll sort of shake their head and say, oh, it just, it, it, it makes my head hurt. You're going to sub-optimize and do a lousy job at each if you don't clearly distinguish what your value proposition is a for-profit, and if you don't clearly distinguish and declare what your value proposition is a non-profit. In other words, the two can't come together. Um, I want to read a quote to you that um, has given me uh, real encouragement and, and, a, and a much more elegant way to sort of frame up this challenge. Um, this is a quote from a sermon that Martin Luther King preached uh, at the height, was sort of right before the height of the, of the civil rights movement. Um, and it, the title of the sermon, and it was actually a sermon series, was called The Strength to Love. And he built this sermon on the basis of one passage in Scripture. Uh, it's from, I think, Matthew 10, where Jesus sends his disciples out into the community uh, and sends them without, uh, the Bible says, without silver or without a tunic. So in other words, without any money and without really the means to survive. And the only instruction that he sends them into the community with is this line. Be as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. Be as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. And that's an instruction that seems sort of filled with contradiction and sort of seems to be at odds. And Martin Luther King said this at the opening of the sermon series. He said, the strong man holds in a living blend strongly marked opposites. The idealists are usually not realistic. And the realists are not usually idealistic. Seldom are the humble self-assertive or the self-assertive humble. But life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites. 
living together in fruitful harmony. Life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites living together in fruitful harmony. And then he went on to describe his view of civil rights as being sort of the embracing of inherent opposites, civil disobedience, nonviolent resistance. And so everything we're trying to do at Pura Vida, in some sense, I think, is an attempt to bring together the discipline and the rigor and the scrutiny of a capitalist system married to and fused with the social purpose and the vision that you find in the best mission-driven organizations that you can find. I'll tell you briefly how we got here and where we are today, and then I want to make sure we have plenty of time for questions. Um, I went to uh, Harvard in 1987. Um, seriously wanted to come here, couldn't get in. and. Uh, on the first day of class, I met this really remarkable guy who had, unlike most of my fellow classmates, come out of what you'd consider to be kind of a nonprofit <coughs> background. He had worked in microfinance in Latin America prior to business school. Uh, so he had seen with his own eyes the sort of transformative power that a $50 loan can have. And he had seen with his own eyes that some of the basic tenets of capitalism, risk, capital, time, and an entrepreneur with sort of the fire in the belly could literally create a steady income stream for a family, which in turn could help stabilize and ultimately transform a community. He had seen it. So a lot of my sort of Berkeley idealism um, was sort of manifested in a guy who had actually been on the front lines. And so we became very good friends. Um, we met every morning before class. Uh, for a time of encouragement and, and prayer. We, we met through a, one of the Christian fellowship groups on campus. We have sort of a common faith uh, interest as, as part of what pulls us together. And when we graduated in 89, uh, we, we took as about a different career directions as you could take. Um, Chris felt a calling. There's no other way to describe it, to return to Latin America and continue his work with the poor in San Jose, Costa Rica. Uh, we sort of all wished him well, um, sort of thought it was a little bit crazy, uh, but he really felt passionately that he had been called to a lifetime of service working with the poor. Um, I felt called to uh, go serve the rich in Redmond, Washington. And uh, <laughs> I joined a small software company that had not yet shipped windows um, and spent the better part of the next decade working in technology um, of all sorts of good old day Microsoft stories that I can get into, but let's just suffice it to say that it was a very intense, exhilarating, ultimately fairly lucrative experience. And yet somehow I didn't feel a sense of passion or vision uh, or any way of sort of acting out on my desire to be about community transformation, social justice, other than just writing checks. Kind of the binary model, right? And yet, Chris and I managed to get together every year, uh, almost every year, for a reunion of sorts, where we would sort of compare notes. And I was really struck on about the seventh one of these meetings at how similar these conversations always were. You know, he would describe these incredible scenes and stories of just incredible transformation in the community. Um, literally, girls pulled from the streets and out of prostitution, um, given a, a safe place to live and a chance to go to school. Um, boys who 
only had known that they would follow their older brothers into dealing crack on the street, who now, because they had a place to go get a meal and play soccer, um, all of a sudden were back in school and talking about getting a job. And, and it was very moving and very touching. Uh, and at the same time, it was very frustrating because he was always out of money. Maybe you know nonprofits like this. Maybe those of you who've been in the nonprofit sector will sort of relate to this. You know, that it, there was the constant climb to get to the capital goal for the year, but then you'd reboot and start all over again the next year, right? And um, although my wife and I have been supporting him, uh, you know, it just it struck me. Here's a guy with great passion and gifts, but he's just he's scrambling and clawing to find a way to do more of what he's called to do. To make a long story short, at about that time, Chris reached under the table uh, and said, you know, I almost forgot I brought you a present from Costa Rica. And he handed me a bag of coffee. Uh, I was doing some consulting work for Howard Schultz at Starbucks at the time, had learned a fair bit about coffee. And I said, wow, this is a great bag of coffee. How much was it? And you know, he looked at me like, well, that's kind of rude. Uh, it was about $3. Why? And I said, that's a $10 bag of coffee. This was nine years ago. Uh, and you paid $3 for it. What if we took coffee from Costa Rica, used the bag as the way to tell the story, and connect the customer to the work that you're doing, and then use the web as the means of transaction and the means of storytelling? And then what if we took the money that we make and just plowed it all back in? And uh, he, without even missing a beat, said we could call it Pura Vida. That means pure life. That's how we greet one another in Costa Rica. I, you know, I think it's incredible. Um, we took 30 days at his suggestion to not do any work on this idea. I was ready to write the plan and raise the money. And he just said, no, let's really, let's, let's take it to prayer. Let's really see that this is something that, that God would have us do. Um, and there was just abundant confirmation in that 30-day period. And so uh, without really knowing the complexities or the difficulties of being in the wholesale commodity business, we, we launched a website, started selling coffee, and somehow the combination of a story of, hey, here's great coffee, married to a great cause. This is literally going to help feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Uh, customers began to find us, and our business began to take off. So we've been at this almost eight years now. Uh, we've become one of the largest independent sellers of fair trade organic shade-grown coffee in the States. Uh, we'll move over a half a million pounds this year, um, do over four million in revenue. and. Um, what we've really found is sort of our sweet spot in the market is selling to institutions, schools, businesses, churches, who have as a part of their constituency consumers who are really values driven, who are looking for ways to align their own values uh, with their discretionary purchasing. So where do you find those kinds of consumers? Uh, you find quite a few of them in church. Um, although that's a really hard market to crack. We can talk more about that if you're interested. We find probably the greatest and most rapid traction right now on college campuses. That's really been what has driven our business. Um, we've grown at over 50% a year for the last four years. So we come onto a campus. We're not here on Stanford yet. Uh, we're on about 200 campuses nationally. Uh, and we do everything from offer residential food service coffee to catering to uh, retail stores, Pura Vida cafes, that would be something that you might find at Tresseter. Uh, and so when you have a chance to get in front of a consumer, 
and you can satisfy them that the product you're offering meets the normal standards of the marketplace. Absolutely has to meet or beat those standards. So quality and value, those have got to be there. And if you can at least play to a tie, ideally you win, but at least a tie with your main competitors, and ours would be Starbucks, Pete's, Green Mountain. Um, then when you introduce the social component and you can talk about the work that's taking place at origin, the com what does it mean to pay a farmer almost a 50% premium over what they would otherwise earn? What does it mean to take profit and redirect it back into those communities? That tends to make for a very compelling uh, point of distinction, very compelling competitive advantage. How do we sort of ensure uh, that the living wage makes it down and how do we determine what that wage is? There's sort of two ways. Um, I'll start sort of with the macro and then go to the micro. The macro is that um, uh, there is an independent third party organization that many of you probably know called Transfair. It's based in Oakland. Uh, it's run by a wonderful guy named Paul Rice who's been here at the business school many times. And it exists as sort of the good housekeeping seal of approval. They are the ones that maintain the audit mechanism and sort of the supply chain integrity to ensure that the premiums being paid actually make it down into the co-ops that the farmers belong to. One of, there are three key tenets of, of fair trade. You have to agree to pay a floor price, which is currently set at $1.26 a pound, considerably higher than the average C price for commodity coffee. It's sort of like a minimum wage. How they arrived at that, I, I can't really tell you. Uh, it's what's deemed to be sort of the minimum floor at which a family could support itself. Um, that's tenant number one. Tenant number two is that there has to be a mechanism for the co-op to extend pre-harvest financing to its members. Uh, one of the most insidious things that you'll learn is that um, without a co-op structure and without sort of pre-harvest financing, uh, many of the farmers are, are they're almost like sharecroppers of 200 years ago where, or indentured servants. They have usually two crops a year. And if you've not budgeted very, very carefully and you find yourself short on food or clothing or medicine, there are these coyotes who come through town who will say, I'll give you a quarter a pound today, but I get your crop in five months. And they then turn around and sell that at three to five to eight times more. Uh, and so having access to pre-harvest financing so they have a way to subsist and live in between the crop and the harvest is key. And then the final tenet is that um, in order to qualify for this certification, your co-op has to be democratically controlled. So anyway, we depend very heavily on transfer as sort of the independent third-party good guy. Uh, we pay them. We pay them seven cents a bag for the right to use their mark and they in turn use the money they get to go out and create value and brand awareness for that mark. So on many college campuses, uh, college activists will say you're either transfer certified or you're not. And don't, don't confuse me, it's, it is binary. You're either, you either got it or you ain't. Then the more micro answer is that um, we belong to a nonprofit coffee co-op ourselves. Pure Vita does. We're one of 16 members. And the members in this co-op, it's called Cooperative Coffees. It's out of Atlanta. Um, it's made up of small roasters like us from the US 
who have kind of collectively pooled our purchasing power uh, so that we can bring coffee in in a more efficient way. We can bring in a full container from Guatemala rather than a half container. We pool our money so that we're able to hire staff people. We have two full-time staff people, and they spend their time mostly at origin. They're the ones who, for almost 10 years now, have been building the relationships with the farmers who are there <coughs> at least quarterly and who provide me with more of the qualitative assurance that, you know what, wow, great work's really getting done. I know, because I was just there. So those two things working together um, are, are pretty powerful and potent guarantee. So um, here we are today. Um, and I would say, maybe just in closing, um, what we've tried to build in the business is a way to create an emotional connection between the producer and the consumer. That's the simplest way to think about what Pure Vita is trying to do. If you imagine that there's a long, long chain, many thousands of miles between a grower and a grower's family and all of us who we order a cup of coffee and we have no knowledge and really no way to have knowledge about where that coffee originated. We might know what country, maybe we know what community, but it's almost impossible, particularly for a commodity, for you to have any sense of connection or involvement or investment in that community. And so our challenge, and it's a, it's a steep one, but it's definitely doable, is to create that sense of connection to help you feel that you've made a difference in the life of an individual and in a community simply by determining where you're going to spend your money. Um, I'll close with just a story that sort of illustrates what happens when you get it right. And so one of the things we started to do last year was to fly farmers up here and to put them in situations just like this. And the first time we did it, we brought a woman up from Nicaragua. She'd never been on a plane. She'd never been out of the country. Her name's Arminda. And when she cleared customs in Houston, she was absolutely sure that she had to be in Seattle because she could not imagine that you could possibly fly any farther. I mean, isn't that wild? She had no frame of reference. She had another four hours on the flight. And the next morning, we brought her into Seattle University, which is one of our big accounts. And there were about 140 students and a bunch of faculty. And here's this woman, you know, petrified, I'm sure. Uh, gold caps on her teeth, sort of a really rough sweater, but she was trying as hard as she knew how to look, you know, presentable. It was, it was just so beautiful. And um, she, she spoke through a translator from our office, and she said, you know, um, I have six children, and my husband and I and our children, all we know how to do is pick coffee, and that's all we've ever done. And until recently, we got about $10 for 100 pounds of green coffee. And because of Pura Vida and because of fair trade, our family now makes over $80 for the same 100 pounds. And because of that, we've been able to take our kids out of the fields and put them into school. And at that point, she starts to choke up. And everybody's kind of swallowing and sniffing. And, and then she delivered sort of the knockout line. She looks at all of these college kids and sort of lingers and makes eye contact and says, you know, some, my husband and I now dream that someday our kids will have a chance to go to college like all of you. 
I had to follow that. I mean, but before I could get up, the head of Jesuit identity at Seattle U, who's you know sort of their campus life guy, jumps up and he goes, "What Arminda's not telling you is that only about half of her family's crop." is able to be sold at fair trade prices because there's not enough demand. There's not enough market pull for her to be able to sell all of her coffee at fair trade prices. It's the same coffee. And the reason there's not enough demand is because people like us are not demanding it. So tomorrow morning when you come back to campus, I ask you to consider the following. There's only one location on this campus that sells Pura Vida fair trade coffee, and it's here at the business school. Remember Arminda when it's time to buy your cup of coffee tomorrow morning. Now, does anybody care to take a guess at what the sales numbers have been at the Business School Cafe since that day? They're up over 200%. And it's not because everybody's now drinking you know, 20 cups of coffee a day. Uh, it's because they got a glimpse of how their purchase decisions could literally affect a person's life. Uh, and so what's happened is there's been a huge shift um, and I find some measure of irony in this. And this is the school where Howard Schultz has his son in college. Um, so anyway, that's the kind of glimpse that I'm talking about. Uh, and then last but not least, I want to just tell you um, one of the uh, most exciting and unexpected outcomes that has sort of come as a result of this business model. I think one of the limitations that my partner and I have is because we're so business focused and because we've been so obsessed with trying to get to cash flow break even which is sort of the milestone in this kind of business, that we've often missed opportunities to just let people come and, and help. Um, about three years ago, we started to see uh, a, a real rise in email from our retail web customers saying, hey, you know, we're already drinking the coffee. It's great. Uh, got it at church. Got it at business. It's at home. Uh, can't drink anymore. You know, see the caffeine jitters. and." Uh, but they were all sort of asking the same question at the end of the email. Where do we send our check? You may know from reading our material that our organizational structure is a little unusual. That we run Pure Vita Coffee as a for-profit. It's an LLC, but all the common stock, all the voting power and the control resides in Pure Vita Partners, which is a 501c3 public charity. So we're capable of receiving money. The problem was is that nowhere on our website did we even have an address it was literally impossible for people to send us money. So we changed that pretty quickly. <laughs> we now give our customers ample opportunities to give. Uh, they can give by project, by location, many, many ways. Uh, and we are now generating over a quarter of a million dollars a year in charitable donations that have enabled us to expand and grow our philanthropic work, including our initiative in Guatemala. Now, that's a really good thing because the value proposition of Pura Vida sort of rests pretty heavily on this idea that I'm buying this coffee to help the farmer, but I also am buying it from your company because of the depth and, and sincerity and totality of your charitable mission. Uh, had it not been for the generosity of our customers and our partners and our donors, it would be very, very difficult to sort of simultaneously grow the business and provide for the charitable work that we're doing. So I offer that as sort of a... A, a nice unexpected outcome and a, and a lesson learned and, and, a, and a good dose of humility too. So thank you for your time. I wish you guys the best. Yeah.
You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. To receive our conversations updates and learn what new podcasts are available, please subscribe to our free bi-monthly newsletter at www.siconversations.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Rob Lepper. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.